Let's open our Bibles this morning to a love song, Song of Solomon, chapter 2. I'm looking at four verses this morning. Song of Solomon, or the Song of Songs. I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. Like a lily among thorns, and so is my love among the daughters. Now the Shulamite. Like an apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down in the shade with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me is love. I picked these four verses because as we study the book of Song of Solomon, it is a love song written by Solomon. It abounds with metaphors and allegories. Historically, in context here, it's, it's um, uh, the heartaches and joy of King Solomon and his love for the Shulamite gal. And um, it is one of the 1,005 songs that Solomon wrote. This is the only one we have that's actually recorded. Uh, it is laced with romance, and um, at face value, it's just that. It's a love song written uh, by Solomon and the Shulamite girl, and it's the only one that we really have recorded for us in Scripture. Some people say the song of Solomon shouldn't be read. It's too graphic with its details, and um, I couldn't disagree more. If it's in the Bible, then we should study it. Good time for an amen. Amen. I mean, love and romance is where we're headed this morning. And um, it, the study really all is really primarily about um, the importance of love over service in a relationship with the Lord. And the clear metaphor that I want to make <clears throat> is that between God's love for Israel as his bride, but also in the New Testament, Jesus' love for his bride. We call him our bridegroom. And um, let me just camp out on, on 1 Corinthians 13 just for a second, and I'll read three verses. Paul says, Oh, I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but if I don't have love, I become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. I could have the gift of prophecy, I could understand all mysteries. I could have all knowledge. And though I have faith so that I could even remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give all my goods to feed the poor, and even if I give my body to be burned, we're talking martyrdom, and I have not love, it profits me nothing. Jesus said, what is the greatest commandment? It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and then make sure that you love your neighbor as yourself. It's always love first, service second. Daniel wanted to know, when are we going home? The 70 years of Babylonian captivity have come, they went, and he's reading Jeremiah, 70 years are up, let's go home. And the first 19 verses of Daniel 9 is a heartfelt, repentive prayer. Lord, you said if we worshiped other idols, 
if we wouldn't keep your Sabbaths, that you'd take us into captivity for 70 years. Daniel had been there the full duration of that 70-year period of time. And then, in the middle of his prayer, verse 20, the angel Gabriel appears to Daniel. But before he gives him the information that he's looking for, I'm reading in verse 22 and 23, Gabriel said, he informed me and talked with me and said, oh, Daniel, I am now come forth to give you skill and understanding. At the beginning of your prayer, the commandment came forth, and I have now come to show you. But this first, Daniel, I want you to know that you're greatly beloved. That's first, and then he says, therefore understand the matter and consider the vision. Our guide in Israel's name was Daniel. And he was explaining, we say Shabbat Shalom. It happens on a Friday night. So so during the week you just say Shalom. But on Friday you say Shabbat Shalom. And then he's he's explaining, but after the Sabbath is over, you have uh, have a good week. I still don't have the Hebrew word down or I'd give it to you right now. (laughs) He's trying to teach me it, but it's the number seven. And what it implies is have a good week or have a good seven. And that was, so instead of Shabbat Shalom, it's this other seven word with a shalom. So have a good week, basically what it means. Well, it gave me an opportunity. I said, as long as we're talking about sevens, Daniel, have you ever read the book that's named after you? And pretty much at the end of the day, for about a week, we got to go back and forth and talk about Daniel chapter 9. And um, I'm praying for my friend, my new friend Daniel, um, because he was starting to ask questions. Now, when they start to ask questions, that means they're genuinely interested. So he went home and read it in Hebrew, said I didn't understand a word of it in Hebrew, read it in English, and it got my attention. You see, Daniel 9 is the only place in the Old Testament that tells when the Jewish Messiah would come to the day. So it's an ongoing um, prayer request for my new made friend, Daniel. You always make new friends when you go there. But I said, before all this information that's here, I just want you to know one thing. And I read this verse to him. Daniel, you're greatly beloved. You know that? God loves you. So before we go any farther in our study, love first, service second. First Corinthians 13 slam dunks at and tells us nothing else matters unless you're loving God first and then you're demonstrating that love uh, to the person you're sitting next to or your brothers and sisters in Christ. Sometimes people get hung up and arguing over doctrine and their love goes away. They'd rather be right than love. And so there's that danger Uh, that's there. Um, I'm going to have you turn to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, and while we're doing that, I'm going to pull something out of my pocket here, and something's going to be put up on the screen. This is called a mezuzah. And when you're in Israel, almost every Israeli door has one of these on it. It's right on the doorpost. There's one right there. Uh, mine's a little bit different. And then sometimes on an angle. But when you're in Israel, 
Before they enter a house, this is what they do. And they touch it. And they, take, they touch their lips, they kiss it, and then bring it back. And what's inside this is the shama. What is the shama? It is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. They took it literal, and that's why they have a mezuzah uh, on their doors. They take it literally. Inside of this is a little scroll. It has Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 in there. But what, to my surprise, as I studied this a little further, is if you turn to chapter um, 11 of Daniel, picking up in verse 13, they have this also in there. I thought it was just Deuteronomy. But in my research, verse 13, and it shall be that if you diligently obey my commandments and I command you today, what commandment? To love the Lord your God and serve him with all of your heart, with all of your soul. He says, then I will give you rain in your land and seasons. And there's these promises and blessings that go all the way down to verse 21. Verse 20 says, and you will write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. So the next time you happen to see one of these, now you know what it's for. It's to remind them that they're to have God's word in their heart at all times. <clears throat> God calls Israel his wife. In Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, I'm just going to read the one from Hosea. Hosea says, And I will betroth thee unto me forever. I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment, and in loving kindness, and in mercy. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord. And it will come to pass in that day, I will hear, says the Lord, I will hear the heavens, and they will hear the earth. God chose to identify himself in a love relationship, and he calls his chosen people his bride. Now, that's the Old Testament. In the New Testament, I'm going to have you turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. So let's make our way to the book of Ephesians. Every wedding we've done here over the years at Calvary, we gravitate to these scriptures. Their instructions, first, first of all, um, in verse 22 and 24, to the gals. In verse 22, it says, Wives, I want you to submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as the church is the head of, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he's the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let their wives be to their own husbands in everything. Now, when I'm looking at the gals that I'm reading up, I just explained to them that they're no longer an individual. 
that in the same way when they became a Christian, one of the first things that we learn as believers is we don't get to call the shots anymore, right? We're told to acknowledge the Lord in all of our ways. And so now we're under the Lord's authority. That's why we call him Lord. So I look at the gal and I'll say in the same way. This is what the Bible is saying. In the same way that you once as an unmarried woman, submitted yourself to the Lord, what's happening here today is changing because now you're standing before the Lord and you're saying in that same way I understand that submission is going to now be to my head. And 1 Corinthians 11 lays that out clearly. Um, the head of, um, of uh, the woman is a man. The head of the man is Christ and the head of Christ is the Father. There's that order that's established. Now on to the husbands, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy without blemish. So ought So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. At this point, I look at the husband and I say, guys, your job is to love in the same way that Jesus loved his church. And I'm gonna tell you straight out, that's impossible. (laughs) that's impossible to do unless he's actually living inside of you. Now, it says greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his life for a friend. That's what Jesus did for us. That was the example he, he gave. He loves the church so much that he laid down his life. So in a Christian wedding, it's different. And I tell the guy, because Jesus lives in you, you're able now to fulfill that. On our own strength, I think it's impossible. But as he's writing to Ephesians, which are Christians, he's expecting them to allow the Holy Spirit to love just as Jesus loved. And just when you think he got this all figured out, okay, I got it, the wife submits to the husband and, and the husband loves his bride like Jesus loved the church, got it, bingo. And then Paul changes the subject completely in verse 32 and says, this is just a mystery. Everything I've just said is is a mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. So just when you think you got it down, what he's talking about, he's saying, no, the marriage relationship is nothing more of of a mystery of something much bigger. And that is the mystery of Christ and his bride, the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. As we dive into the Song of Solomon, the allegorical applications, yes, there's a lovely romantic, sensual relationship going on in the Song of Solomon between Solomon and the Shulamite gal. But on a deeper level, It is really Jesus' love, keeping that 
as a primary focus um, to his bride. He's the bridegroom, and we are his bride. Now, this New Testament teaching right here, I believe you've heard me say this. If you heard me once, you heard a thousand times. Here's the teaching. And I like to say for every New Testament teaching, we have an Old Testament picture. In order for the picture to develop, we gotta do a little bit of word studies from the Gospel of John chapter 14. And I wanna draw your attention to verse 15. Jesus talking to his disciples. We already know we're told to love him. He says so in verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. What are his commandments? That you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and being, and love your neighbor as yourself. Then what will he do? Verse 16. Then I'm going to pray to the Father, and he will give you, now I have the King James, New King James Version that says helper. If you have the King James Version, it's going to say comforter. And that he may abide with you forever. Well, who is this helper, comforter? Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. Now notice this, for he dwells with you, present tense, and you will be in you, future tense. Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet. The Holy Spirit was with the disciples, but only after Jesus paid the price was that veil in the temple rent. And now for the first time, human beings can have God living inside of them. So what he's saying here is right now he's with you, but he's going to be in you. One of the guys during men's prayer yesterday says, well, how is it, in talking about the Holy Spirit, that um, um, the Holy Spirit could, could be with Uh, David, take not thy Holy Spirit from me, is what he prayed. And even Saul had the Spirit come upon him one time. Remember he prophesied? Well, it's one thing to have the Spirit come upon you. It's a, a completely another thing to have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. Another good place for an amen. So understanding this, I want to get back to a word study now where he actually talks about the helper. He doesn't call him the Holy Spirit there. I will pray, and if you have the King James, it says comforter, and if you have the New King James like I do, it says helper. When you look up the word uh, in um, your Strong's Concordance or your Vine, uh, the Greek word there is parakletos, and it means one who comes alongside to help. And the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to draw you and help you come to a relationship with the Lord. Um, we talk about divine appointments. And I had, I had one in the laundromat in, in, in Jerusalem. He was a sincere seeker, his name is Moshi. And I thought I was there to do my fruit of the looms and get some clean socks. <laughs> And I was the only one in there. And I'm not going to tell the whole story. It's too long. But we struck up a friendship. And um, we exchanged phone numbers and email addresses. 
And we talked straight on for a half an hour straight. And he had to be somewhere. And we, we kept coming back to, to um, the scriptures. And he was, he was, it was just a divine appointment. And I remember saying, Moshe, the last thing I, as he was walking out the door, I said, Moshe, I don't believe in coincidences. And he just nodded his head in agreement. So, you know, that's a seed being sowed. My prayer is the next day he runs into another Christian that tells him uh, exactly the same thing I did. I had one this week. I had a guy come and clean out my, my uh, chimney because I haven't used it for a while. And he says, this is clean as a whistle. I don't need to do anything. His name is Mike. And um, he said, so you just got back from Israel? And I said, yeah. And we started talking, and he said, so I suppose you're a Christian. And I said, yeah. And he said, well, I, I, I know the Lord too. And I said, well, that's great. But I could tell he kind of didn't. So we started talking, and I said, you know, Mike, just read the Gospel of John. And his mouth dropped open. And he said, my wife told me to read the Gospel of John yesterday. I says, yeah. (laughs) And then he has a nephew who is upset with the Israelis uh, taking Palestinian land. All right, that's all I needed. (laughs) And we took off in about a 20-minute conversation going back whose land it is, and there is no such thing as a Palestinian. They don't exist. There is, there is no land of Palestine. There is no Palestinian. And uh, that's a different Bible study for another, another time. But the idea here, getting back to John 15, is that the purpose of the Lord sending the Holy Spirit, it's interesting to me he doesn't say, I'm going to send back the Holy Spirit here. He does later. But here he's simply introduced as a paracletus, or the helper, or the comforter. And um, I needed that much of a background, because if the, old, if the New Testament teaching is that Jesus is our bridegroom and we're the bride, then we should have a picture of it in the Old Testament. So let's go to the book of Genesis, chapter 24. One of my favorite stories in the Bible. It's a story of Isaac and Abraham and a servant who goes unnamed. Let's just read the first two verses. Now when Abraham was well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things, Abraham said to his oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all that he had, please put your hand under my I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven, the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites whom I dwell, but you will go to my country, to my kindred, and take a wife for my son Isaac. Well, if he's the most important servant in the house, and um, we find here that he actually goes unnamed. But we know his name. Just flip back to chapter 15, verse 2. And when we get back to chapter 15, verse 2, the Lord is talking to Abraham. And Abraham, it says in verse 1, After these things the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, saying, Don't be afraid, Abraham. I'm your shield. 
and your exceedingly great reward. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what are you going to give me? I go childless. And the heir of my house, Eliezer of Damascus. Um, Look, Lord, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. He said, I'm going to leave everything that I have, not to a son, but of Eliezer of Damascus. Let's go back to chapter 24. Now we have him unnamed in verse 2. He's called the oldest servant. Why not call him who he is? We know who he is. He's Eliezer of Damascus. One of the little treats we had between Jericho and Jerusalem was a place called Genesis Land. And we went there, about 40 of us, and they had about 10, 15, 20 camels. And what you do is you get on a camel, two on each camel, and you ride for a quarter of a mile down to Abraham's tent. But the guy who greets you before you get on your camel is Eliezer of Damascus. And he introduces himself as Abraham's servant. And then we get down there with the camels, and they're getting off the camels, and he's out there going, Abraham, Abraham. And here's Abraham coming out of this tent that would have been like his tent when he would have lived. And it's overlooking the Judean wilderness. It's absolutely gorgeous. And we put on gowns so we look like we're going back in time. And we sit at low tables. And um, Abraham does not come out of character. I tried to get him out of character. Didn't work. And he plays Abraham. And we were there, had one of the best meals that we could have. But the guy who was doing the running back and forth was Eliezer. He actually said, I'm Eliezer from Damascus. And Abraham is is my servant. Verse 2, the oldest servant goes unnamed. And uh, I find this interesting because when you read about the Holy Spirit, uh, he says he will not draw attention to himself, but will only speak of the one who's coming. You see, when the Holy Spirit was given, it said his purpose was to draw attention to Jesus and not to himself. So we have here in verse two, Eliezer. So Abraham said, it's interesting that he goes unnamed. And basically, I'm gonna lay out what chapter 24 is about and then come back, we'll go through it slowly. Abraham, here's the picture. He's gonna be a type of the Father. Eliezer is going to be a type of the Holy Spirit. Isaac is going to be a type of, the, of Jesus Christ. And Rebecca, who we're gonna meet shortly, is going to be a picture of the church itself. What's the story? The story is Abraham sending Eliezer By the way, if you do a word study on the name Eliezer, his name comes up as helper. Now we have a direct connection between John 14, where the Paracletus, I will send you another helper, and he's going to abide in you. And now we have the Old Testament picture. Is it a coincidence that this guy's name means helper? I don't think so. So we read, and what we have here 
And reading just a little bit between the lines, the first question that Eliezer asked Abraham, he says, well, verse five, well, perhaps the woman is not willing to come with me. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Notice what the father says. Beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord God of heaven who took me from the, my father's house and from the land of my kindred who spoke to me and swore to me saying to your descendants I will give you this land and he will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife from my son from there. But perhaps if the woman is not willing to go then, then you released from this oath. What was the oath? Well it's sort of like a handshake or a promise but it was putting a hand under your thigh which meant you're making a, an oath to follow through and do this. So now we have the father loaded down with gifts and camels and men who are going to go on a far journey with the purpose of bringing back a bride for his son Isaac. And I'll be a little repetitive on this point this morning, but gang, I want you to know what this is all about. The Holy Spirit is with you when you're not saved, trying to get your attention. And then you yield one day, you give your life to Christ, and now the Holy Spirit is in you. We're betrothed right now. I'm not at my wedding feast, and the marriage has not yet taken place. So we're sort of in the engagement period, if you're following my thinking here. So what happens is, Eliezer makes it, and as he's getting close to where he's headed, in verse 10, his servants took 10 of his master's camels and departed for all of his master's goods. He's got a lot of gifts with him when he comes. When the Holy Spirit came, what did he give? He gave gifts unto the church. And he came to Mesopotamia, and now he does one of those prayers that he's just talking to God about. He says in verse 12, Now, Lord, of my master Abraham, please give me success this day. Show kindness to my master. And then he throws this what we call a fleece out. He says, this is how I will know the right gal when she comes. I want to stand here by the well of water and the daughters of men and the city are coming out to draw water. Now, I want you to let it be the young woman to whom I say, Please let down your pitcher that I might drink. And she says, drink, but then have her say, and I'll, and I'll water your camels too. So he's throwing this out. He says, the one I want, would you do this for me, Lord? I'm gonna ask for a drink of water. And if she gives it to me, great. But I also want her to say, hey, I'm gonna water your camels too. Um, then I will know you have appointed for your servant Isaac, and this is how I will know that you have showed kindness to my master. And it happened. Uh, before he had finished speaking, that behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother. It's Abraham's brother's daughter that's coming out to get water, came out with her pitcher on her shoulder, and now the young woman was very beautiful to behold a virgin. I'll tell you something that is about this description of women in the Bible. This is the only time 
that very is put in front of beautiful. Sarah was beautiful. But I want you to know this is the only time that very beautiful is mentioned. And so if it's a reference to the church, and then it says she was a virgin, and the woman was very beautiful to behold, no man had known her, she went down to the well, filled her pitcher, and came up. And the servant ran to meet her and said, please let me drink a little water from your pitcher. And she said, drink, my Lord. And she hastened and let down her pitcher down to the uh, hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels too. Don't you think he got excited at that point? He goes, hot dog, this is the one. <laughs> Until they had finished drinking. And then he hastened and emptied the pitcher into the trough, ran back to the well to draw water, and drew for the camels. And the man, wondering at her, remained silent as to know whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous or not. So it was so, when the camels had finished drinking, that the man took a golden nose ring, weighing a half a shekel, and two bracelets on her wrist, weighing ten shekels of gold. And he said, whose daughter are you? Tell me, please, is there room in your father's house to my life? So, you know, gals, I don't know if you'd like it today, but I can't imagine a, a nose ring weighing 10 shekels being stuck in your nose and these uh, heavy bracelets. And basically, the rest of the story is she says, we got all kinds of room. And she goes home and tells her dad, and then she tells her brother Laban all that had happened, Laban comes out and greets um, Eliezer, the unknown servant. And he says in verse 31, Come, O blessed of the Lord, why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. And they came in and they said, We want you to sit down and eat. And Eliezer says, I can't sit down and eat quite yet. I've got to tell you guys why I'm here. And what he does is he goes back and he tells the whole story. I made a promise to Abraham, your brother, and I've traveled this way. And right before I got here, I I spoke to the Lord, and I said, Lord, let it be the one who, if I ask for water, she gives me water. But then also, she says, I'll water your camels too. That's how I will know it's the one. So the story is being retold, and he says, before I eat, I have to know if you're willing to do this. And if not, then we read in verse 41, then I'll turn to the right hand or to the left. But I gotta know before I eat. And their answer in verse 50, then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, the thing comes from the Lord. We can't speak to you either good or bad. Here's Rebecca, go ahead and take her. So just like that. The arrangement was made, the deal was made, and uh, then uh, 32, Eliezer begins to bring out silver and gold and clothes, gave them to Rebekah, and then he gave some to her brother and her mother, and um, then he says, I want to get going in verse 50, don't hinder me since the Lord has prospered my way, send me away so that I might go to my master. So they said, we will call the young woman and we'll ask her personally. Laban, (laughs) typical Laban. He says, how about if she sticks around for 10 more days? And um, 
Eliezer wasn't into that at all. And he says, all right, if she wants to go, she can go. So in verse 56, they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. In case you're missing um, the illustrations here, a choice, a proposition, the gospel's been presented, what we would say today, But even with the Holy Spirit drawing you, you still have to be the one as a bride of Christ to say yes or no. You have freedom to accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your future bridegroom, or you have the perfect right to say no, I don't don't want to. And this, where she says, I will go. Don't let those three little words pass you by. This is her free will, Nobody's making her do this. Yes, the arrangement has been made, but the ball's at her court. She's going to make the call. So they sent away Rebekah, their sisters and her nurse, and Abraham's servants and his men. They blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become the mother of thousands of tens of thousands, and may your descendants possess the gates of those who hate them. Then Rebekah and her maids arose, And they rode on the camel and followed the man. And so the servant took Rebekah and departed. All right. That's in Mesopotamia. Back at home, beginning with verse 62, we're back in the land of Cana, where Abraham is waiting with Isaac. And in verse 62, now Isaac came from the way of Ber Lena Roy, for he dwelt in the south. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field at the evening, and he lifted his eyes and looked, and there camels were coming. And then Rebekah Rebecca lifted her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from her camel. For she said to the servant, Who is this man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, It is my master. So she took a veil and covered herself. And the servants told Isaac all the things that he had done. And then Isaac brought her into his mother's tent. He took Rebekah, she became his wife, and he loved her. And so Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Sarah had just died. And uh, this was a comforting thing for Isaac. As I put myself in the story, and she's waiting, um, we were kidding when we were riding the camels because they're so uncomfortable. And I said, stop, you're complaining. You know, they, they, they did this back here. We're, we're talking about a many day journey, up and down and up and down on, on this camel. And um, I, must, I kind of wonder what she was thinking. I'm getting married. I've never seen this guy. I wonder what he looks like. I wonder if he's going to be kind. And uh, all I know for sure is that I'm going to meet him pretty soon and I'm going to see him face to face. Is the picture coming together? Because that's what's happening. Oh yeah, she said yes, but there was this journey. And during the journey they wondered, she wondered, what's he look like? We wonder what the Lord looks like and what it's going to be like. All the Bible tells us is that when we see him, we will know as we are known. 
Just let that one settle in. All the things we wonder about. It says, we will know as we are known. Question, is there anything the Lord doesn't know about you? As he knows, we are going to know. Interesting stuff. Right now, we're waiting for our bridegroom. Let's turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 25. The parables are given to us to explain what the kingdom of heaven is like. And here we have the parable of the ten virgins. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five were wise, five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise, they took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed... They all slumbered and slept. At midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out and meet him. And then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should be not enough for us, and you go rather to those who sell and buy for yourself. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in to the wedding, and the door was shut. And afterwards the other virgins came and said, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he said unto them, Assuredly, I say to you, I don't know you. Watch, therefore, for you do not know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. We have here 10 virgins. We have here people, all of them believe they are Christians. The difference between the two is one had oil and the others didn't. Oil is always symbolic of the spirit. Five of them had the spirit. Five of them did not. Matter of fact, the Lord said to those, I don't know you. In verse 12, they called themselves Christian, but the Lord looked at them and says, I don't know you, who are you? There was no love, personal relationship. On the other hand, those who are wise, they had the spirit. Jesus said in Matthew seven twenty one, there's a day that's going to come when he said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Well, what's the will of the Father? Well, to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, might. Love your neighbor as yourself. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, we prophesied. We cast out demons. We did a lot of works in your name. That's why love first, work seconds. And then he says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And all the while, they thought, All was well between them. Just coming back from Israel, this is written by Zola Lovett. It is how a Jewish wedding would take place. And I want you to bear with me as I read a couple chapters. I learned something on this trip from our our guide, Daniel. He was talking about a Jewish wedding. 
And he says, do you know why they put that wine glass down on the, on the ground and cover it and then go, and I go, party time? I don't know. <laughs> he says, no. And so that we'll never forget that the temple was crushed. And I go, really? Even at a wedding? Even at a wedding. And so the very reason that they do that ritual, we have rituals, but they don't want to ever forget that their temple was destroyed. With that, Zola, who's with the Lord now, is going to explain to us as we begin to wind up this morning what a typical Jewish wedding consisted of. When the young man of Israel in Jesus' time saw the girl he wanted, or the girl his father said he wanted, (laughs) he would approach her with a marriage contract. He would come to her house with a covenant, a true legal agreement, giving the terms by which he would propose marriage. The most important consideration in the contract was the price of the bride uh, groom would be willing to pay to marry this particular bride. The bridegroom would present himself to the bride with this agreement, offering to pay a suitable price for her, and she and her father would consider this contract. If the terms were suitable, the bride and groom would drink a cup of wine together, and this would seal the bargain. This cup is most significant. It signifies the bridegroom's willingness to sacrifice in order to have this bride. It was offered as a toast to the bride, and of course, it showed the bride's willingness to enter into this marriage. Then the groom would pay the price. It should be stated that this price was no modest token, but was set so that the new bride would be a costly item. That was the idea. The young man had no delusions that he was getting something for nothing. He would pay dearly to marry the girl of his choice. When the matter was settled, the groom would depart. He would make a little speech to his bride saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And he would return to his father's house. Back at his father's house, he would build her a bridal chamber, a little mansion in which they would have their future honeymoon. We should appreciate that this was a complex undertaking for the bridegroom. He would actually build a separate building on his father's property or decorate a room in his father's house. The bridal chamber had to be beautiful. One doesn't honeymoon just anywhere. And it had to be stocked with provisions since the bride and the groom were going to remain inside for seven days. This construction project would take the better part of a year, ordinarily, and the father of the groom would be the judge of when it was finished. We can see the logic here. Obviously, if it was up to the young man, he'd throw up some kind of modest structure and go get the girl. But the father of the groom, who had been through this previously and was less excited, would be the final judge on when the chamber was ready and when the young man would go to claim his bride. The bride, for her part, was obligated to do a lot of waiting. She would take the time to gather her um, wedding belongings and be ready when the bridegroom came. Custom provided that she had to have an oil lamp ready in case he came late at night in the darkness because she had to be ready to travel at a moment's notice. 
And during this long period of waiting, she was referred to as consecrated or set apart or bought with a price. She was truly a lady in waiting, but there was no doubt that her groom would come. Sometimes young men would depart for a very long time indeed, but of course, he had paid a high price for his bride. And even though there were other young women available, he would surely return to the one with whom he had made a covenant. The bride would wear her veil wherever she stepped out of her house so that the other young men would realize that she was spoken for and would not try to approach her with another contract. Today, the bride of Christ wears a veil. Those not understanding of our covenant tried to make other contacts, contracts with us that would violate the one we have with our bridegroom. We are to resist those other offers and wait only for the one who paid for us. As the year went on, the bride would assemble her sisters and bridemaids and whoever would go with her to the wedding when the bridegroom came. And they would each have their oil lamps ready. They would wait at her house every night on the chance that the groom would come along with his groomswoman and sweep them away to a joyous and setting wedding ceremony. Meanwhile, the bridegroom would be building and decorating with all that he had. His father would inspect the chamber from time to time to see if it was ready. If we came along the road at this point and saw the young man working on the bridal chamber, we might ask him, when's the big day? But the bridegroom could only answer, only my father knows that. Finally, the chamber would be ready. The bridegroom would assemble his young friends to accompany him on the exciting trip to claim his bride. The big moment had arrived. And the bridegroom was more than ready, we can be sure. He and his young men would set out in night, making every attempt to completely surprise the bride. And that's the romantic part. All the Jewish brides were stolen. The Jews had a special understanding of a woman's heart. What a thrill for her to be abducted and carried off into the night, not by a stranger, but by one who loved her so much that he paid a high price for her. Over at the bride's house, things had better be ready to be sure the bride would be surprised since the bride would try to come at midnight while she was sleeping. But the oil lamps were ready, and the bride had her veil. And while she might be sleeping in her wedding dress, she was definitely surprised. It's a wonder she would sleep at all as the year went on. Now, there were rules to be observed in consideration of a woman's feelings. The groom couldn't rush in on her. After all, she might be in her rollers. (laughs) Actually, as the excited party of the young men would get close to their house, they were obligated to give her a warning. Someone in the wedding party would shout, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. And when the bride heard that shout, she knew her young men would be there momentarily. She had only time to light her lamp, grab her honeymoon clothing, and go. Her sisters and bridemaids who wanted to attend also had to have their lamps trimmed and ready, of course. 
No one would try to walk through ancient Israel with its rocky train in the dark of night without carrying a lamp. And so the groom and his men would charge in, grab the girls, and make off with them. The father of the bride and the brothers would look the other way, perhaps just making one quick check to see that this was a young man with the contract. And a wedding party would be off. People in a village might be awakened from their sleep by the happy voices of the young people carrying the oil lamps through the streets. And that's how they knew a wedding was going on. Today, we hear car horns. (laughs) Back then, they saw the lamps late at night. Those looking on would not know who the bride was because she was wearing a veil, of course. But she would be returning through these same streets a week later, remember that, a week later, with her groom, and then her veil would be off. At the return of the bride with her bridegroom, all the people would know just who got married, and they would realize the total significance of this wedding. And when the wedding party reached the house of the groom's father, the bride and the groom would go into their chamber and shut the doors. No one else would enter. The groom's father, meanwhile, would have assembled the wedding guests, his friends, and they would be ready to celebrate the new marriage. Since the wedding was actually going to take seven days until the appearance of the bride and groom out of the chamber, it was hard to plan for. Occasionally, the host would run out of wine, as we can well imagine. The Lord himself graced a wedding at Cana with his presence and replenished the wine for the celebrants, as told in John 2. But the celebrating wouldn't start right away. First, the marriage had to actually be consummated. The Jews were a most law-abiding people, and the law provided that the bride and the groom become one before their marriage was recognized. Thus, the friend of the bridegroom, the individual we might refer to as the best man, would stand near the door of the bedchamber waiting to hear the bridegroom's voice. And the wedding was consummated. The bridegroom would tell his friends through the door and the friends would then go to the wedding guests and announce the good news. The celebration would then begin and it would continue for an entire week. At the end of the week, The bride and the groom would make their long-awaited appearance to the cheers of the crowd. They would then be a joyful meal, a marriage supper, which we might refer to as the wedding reception to honor a new couple. At this point, the bride would have discarded her veil since she was now a married woman, and all would see exactly who it was the bridegroom had chosen. The new couple and the guests would enjoy a magnificent feast to conclude the entire matrimonial week. After the marriage supper, the bride and the groom would depart, not remaining any longer at the home of the groom's father. They would go instead to their own house, which had been prepared by the bridegroom. The bride of Christ will spend seven years in heaven at the home of the groom's father. I'm going to read that one again. The bride of Christ will spend seven years in heaven at the home of the groom's father. And then we shall return with our bridegroom to occupy the kingdom he has prepared for us. 
as bride and the groom would travel back through the village, it would be appropriate by all onlookers just who the couple was and where their permanent home would be. And this was a completed Jewish wedding in Jesus' time, in all of its glory. Readers of the gospel can easily see the beautiful allegories between the complex procedures and the manner in which the Lord himself called out his chosen bride. We will receive below each of the elements of further explanation in his book. But he says, perhaps there's no happier Bible study than this one. And if you want to pick this up, it's by Zola Lovett called A Christian Love Story. That much I'll leave. And as we close, I would like you to turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 19. New Testament teaching, Old Testament picture. I love the way the Holy Spirit, even in the names of the helper, the Holy Spirit being called the helper, Eliezer means helper, sent on a journey to a far country to get a bride for Isaac. Gang, you're Isaac. And, um, and the Lord is, is Isaac, and, and we're Rebecca. Haven't seen him. Kind of excited about seeing him, though. And I'm waiting for a wedding feast to take place. Revelation chapter 19, verse 7, says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. How? And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine, clean linen, bright for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, right, blessed are those who are called to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. And John fell at the feet of this angel and worshiped him, but he said to him, don't do that. I'm your fellow servant and your, your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is a spirit of prophecy. Usually when you're reading a novel, you can't wait to get to the end. Sometimes I cheat and I read the last chapter first because I really want to know how it's going to turn out. But our study this morning is so important as we understand that the book of Song of Solomon has deeper meanings to it. It's a love story. But it's a love story how much the Lord loves you. The Bible ends with the question, how much do we love him? There's a chorus between a bride and the Holy Spirit going on here. You see, we've been in this together. So we read the last book verses of the Bible, Revelation 22, and we read in verse 16, Jesus' final words. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. Notice 17. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who is thirsty, come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anybody adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in the book.
If anyone takes away the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in the book. And then our Lord says this, red letters. He who testifies to these things says, surely, this is our Lord, I'm coming. I'm coming quickly, I'm on my way. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Song of Solomon's a love story about God's love for Israel and his covenant with them, but also a love story where the Holy Spirit has drawn out the church. But gang, he wants you to see it as romantic and love in the same way that would be between a husband and a wife. So we're sort of on our camels and we can look in the distance and we see them in the distance and we're kind of getting excited as we see the signs all around that are pointing to one thing. Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Amen? Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. How deep and how rich and how wonderful. Lord, it seems the deeper we dig into your word, your play on words with Eliezer and helper and comforter and the picture that you portrayed for us in the Old Testament. And now the challenge to keep the main thing the main thing and that is that we're betrothed, we're engaged. Lord, don't let anything distract us from saying, even so come Lord Jesus, along with the Holy Spirit. And so thank you for the Song of Solomon. And I pray this morning we'd have a whole new awareness of just how much you really love us and how excited you are for that day to come. Lord, help it be our excitement too. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.